Your entire life you've been told to save. But has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And I'm just as guilty of it, right? Like, you know, with my kids and instead I'm looking at Twitter. And for a while it was like, well, that was off limits. That was construed as somehow, you know, policing contemporary life in a way that was inappropriate and impossible. Uh, But it's also right. It's like, no, that that is the first step a little bit. Not because you need to have self-control, but because we need some kind of social collaboration in which we can agree to do it together. Like, this is a really simple example of this. I don't think it's the best one, but it's at least concrete that I wrote about in one of my books where you go out with friends to dinner or something. Everybody like stacks their phone in the middle of the table and uh, the first person to pick theirs up has to pay. You know, it's a silly game. But what was interesting about it is a social structure in which people were helping one another change their habits. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Ian Bogost, an author, professor, and contributor at The Atlantic where he recently wrote a piece called The Age of Social Media is Ending. Sounds nice. So Ian says this is more of an aspirational title than a prediction, but his argument goes something like this. Elon's Twitter drama and Facebook's steady decline have given us the chance to think about how we got into this mess and where we might go next. He points out that social media used to be known as social networks and that the early platforms were about connecting not broadcasting, building relationships, not publishing content. But with the advent of Instagram and Twitter, everyone got the chance to talk to everyone else all of the time, something Ian argues we just aren't meant to do. And that's the source of a lot of the problems we're still grappling with today. I am obviously a very online guy with uh, very offline aspirations. So part of me has enjoyed watching Facebook hemorrhage and, and Twitter spiral, But I also want these platforms to work. And maybe in all the chaos, we finally reached a moment where change is possible. Not the kind of change that comes from Washington or Silicon Valley, but a bigger cultural change in how we interact with these platforms and each other. So Ian and I talk about it all. Overcoming social media addiction, how limiting engagement can civilize online discourse, and the winners and losers of this evolving phenomenon. As always... If you have comments, questions, or episode ideas, please email us at offlineatcricket.com. We'll be having a special New Year's episode where I answer listener-submitted questions with some help from my fellow Crooked podcasters, the uh, much cooler-than-me hosts of Dare We Say. So if you have any burning questions about the internet, social media, online discourse, send them along via, you guessed it, Twitter. Here's Ian Bogost. Ian Bogos, welcome to Offline. Thanks for having me. All right, so we have been drowning in takes about the end of Twitter for the last few weeks. Exhausting. <laughs> I thought you captured the, the mood quite well when you wrote that uh, tweeters have been tweeting in panic mode as if from an aircraft about to careen into a mountainside. 
Yeah. That, that is the vibe. That is the vibe. Yeah, but it's still up, right? <laughs> it's, you know, there it's we're still, still out there tweeting. Uh, yeah. We're unfortunately. Well, so you also offered a take on all of this in the Atlantic that goes beyond just Twitter's potential demise in a piece titled The Age of Social Media is Ending. Why do you think that happy outcome uh, might come to pass? <laughs> It's aspirational, uh, for sure. And it would take a lot uh, to collapse the social media ecosystem, not to mention the industry. But but I think this thing with Twitter, it's like the first time in a long time when the idea, the possibility of something different, of something new, has felt present. You know, like, wow, we this is unnatural. We, we invented this. We didn't used to do this, and now we do, and, and we might yet do something different. That, that's what the sort of Twitter angst means to me. That's what I think people are really expressing. Not that they think the service is going to collapse or that Musk is going to uh, careen it into the mountain. And, and that really just kind of led me to think about how we got here, uh, which is just a story we don't, we don't tell that much. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about all the ways social media has been bad for us as individuals and as a society. You draw an interesting distinction between social networks, which is what we started with, and social media, which is what we have right. now. Can you talk about the difference and also sort of the evolution? Yeah. Well, first of all, social networks don't have anything to do with the internet or with computers right. uh, or any specific technology. It's just all the people you know and interact with and the people you know in different contexts. All of us have many social networks we have. Uh, our colleagues at work, we have our schoolmates, uh, if we go to school or if you're in college or, or, you know, we have, um, our neighbors in our community, people you go to church with folks who, who have the same hobby as you. So we have all these social networks, all these, um, these groups of, of friends, acquaintances, and other kinds of individuals that we interact with. And we've always had that. And we've always had to find ways of, uh, facilitating those relationships, uh, when the internet became commercially viable and when enough people were on it in the late 90s and early 2000s, then it became possible to, to translate social networks into software. And we, we even called them at the time social network software, right. like a way of using computers in the internet to, to build and manage your social networks, the people you knew. So that, that social network is all about like the people you already know, mostly maybe you meet some new friends through the other friends you have. It's very tight, quite small, purpose-built, and you're mostly using them to do offline things, you know, to get a job or to figure out where you're going to go to to a concert or um, uh, to manage a problem in the neighborhood, what have you. So that's social networking. Uh, social media took that concept years later and instead of the people that you were in contact with being the center of it, it was like the idea of connection got blown up and as many connections as possible became the new value and really transformed that social networking model into a kind of broadcasting model. So on a social media service, you're no longer concerned with building and maintaining relationships. You're using the connections that you can get to send messages out to as many people as possible and as often as possible, or then to respond and react to the messages that other people uh, are sending. And that latter model is really where the, the wealth of these big tech companies uh, like Facebook and Twitter uh, came from. There's been this endless debate over social media content moderation, especially since Elon took over Twitter. Mm -hmm. You share the view of some guests we've had on that the problem isn't 
necessarily content moderation. It's that people just shouldn't have access to the huge audience you were just talking about that social right. media provides because we just aren't meant to talk to each other that much. Yeah. Why do you yeah. think that is? Like, what is it about all this connection and all this broadcasting that's bad or that hasn't worked out that well? Yeah, there's a couple ways of looking at this. One of them is a, through a social scientific lens. And some people don't like this, but there's this idea of Dunbar's number. Have you heard of this? Uh, no. Okay, so it, it's been around the block a little. And, and basically the notion is there's only a finite number of people you can really know that you can really maintain real relationships with. And, and there have been different versions of this number. It's been interpreted and misinterpreted. Some say it's like, oh, it's 150 people. Or, well, maybe it's 150 people that you know, but it's only like a handful of people that you're really close to that truly know you in some way. And, you know, whatever you think of this idea, if you kind of just pressure test it in your own life, it does make sense. Like there are different types, different qualitative relationships that you have uh, with your family or with your very close friends than you have uh, with strangers on the internet. And what the internet does, though, is it, it kind of collapses all of this. Like everyone looks the same. Mm. You feel like, well, I have the same relationship with anyone, the same potential relationship. And I think about this every time some rando online is talking to me. I'm like, who, who are you? Do I know you? Because you, the software structures encourages us to to interact as if we do. But even if you give up on the Dunbar stuff, I think we have to admit that never before in human history have so many people had such direct and immediate access to so many other people so often. And whether you think that's good or bad, I have my view on it, which is that it's bad. But whether you think it's good or bad, it's unprecedented. Yeah. It just hasn't happened before. And that's the idea a, that's that we, unequivocally true. Right. <laughs> And, and and if you think about that for like another second and kind of go, well, that is weird. Like, how is it possible that we could we could just kind of come to terms with that so instantly and and you know act normally or or, or even understand what it means without a great deal of of social, political, cultural, legal effort? Um, then I think you would conclude, well, we we can't. We absolutely do. and we haven't made that investment. We've used these services a lot, but we haven't made the investment in kind of figuring out how to use them to our benefit. I mean, I guess we should get into why you think it's bad. I mean, I also think it's bad, but I'm interested in what you have to say. <laughs> I mean, like the, the promise of the internet in in the 90s and in the early aughts and sort of the tech utopia version of this that I think a lot of other folks bought into early on. I think a lot of uh, political leaders bought into it. I was on the Obama campaign in 2008, right? This right. was like the, right. you know, Facebook and the internet is one of the ways we organized. And yeah. I think the, the belief was, okay, if you could connect people from different backgrounds and cultures and geographies all over the world, and you could sort of break down the barriers between people and show people that we're all not that different, that we could all connect to each other, that you could sort of build this larger global community, right? That the mm -hmm. technology and the internet would sort of be the, this was what, you know, as globalization was happening, this would be the way that we interact with one another, right? Technology right. would bring us closer together. Why didn't it work out that way? Why is it such a mess right now? I think we may have made a really simple mistake, which is to assume that those connections, the way that we were going to accomplish that connectivity mm. was by giving everyone all the connections or all the potential connections. Mm. What you really want is you want a few. And you want some some connections that you haven't previously had. 
And we, we know that when people are exposed to others who are, are unlike them or unfamiliar to them and they get to know them as individuals and as groups, um, that they can't help but develop a certain empathy for their plight, right? And, and that's one of the sort of fundamental ideas of progressive politics. But do we need all of them? Do we need to know all of them directly all the time, this often, constantly, on, on your phone every day? Do we need to respond to them? Do they need to respond to us? So maybe that's like a, a really facile distinction to make. But what if it's the right one? That it's it's not that the connections are the problem. It's using them. It's using them so often. That's where we made the error. Yeah, and I do wonder, to your point about empathy, when you are in a situation where you are broadcasting your thoughts to the rest of the world, it's social media, but you're more focused on yourself. That's right. Than the other people. And to the point about how it's there's a leveling to it because everyone is two-dimensional because there's 15 tweets and whether you know the people who are tweeting well or not well uh, or somewhere in between, um, you sort of see them as their text and their and the, whatever picture they choose. And you don't really see them as, as human as much mm-hmm. or, or you, you see them as less human as you would if you saw them in real life or even were on a text with them one-on-one, right? right? Like even in a text message right. conversation. So I do wonder if that's part of the, part yeah. of the issue. One really simple thing that, that I'm not the first to make this observation, but it's worth making again. Back when MySpace was the big social network, uh, people would make these sort of bananas looking MySpace pages, you know, where they personalize them. It's kind of like, you know, GeoCities homepage style meets sort of Facebook style, Friendster, I guess, style social social networking. And, I, you know, I've always been a little sort of skittish about saying that you can express yourself by putting a background image on your web page. But there was some distinction, at least, you know, you, you, that your page looked different than my page. The music that we were showing wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like, what did I like? And when Facebook came along, it tore all that apart. And we all got the same blue and white page. Mm. And the format, the frame in which our expression took place was collapsed. And there was only one of them. And then, and then what choice turned into was, well, you can choose between social media services. That's the way that you'll make the choice. Are you making video on, on YouTube? Are you posting square images on, on Instagram? Are you posting short quips on Twitter? But yeah, like the way that the form in which the material gets presented, uh, it does turn us all into these kind of machines acting for the benefit of the social media companies rather than as, as individual uh, agents speaking in our own voices. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. You don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com slash WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Twitter is probably the the purest example of this dynamic. It does seem like Elon's Twitter, as you've written, is sort of the purest distillation of a service that devours itself in order to fuel its own furtherance, which I love. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a line, isn't it? But I think I think you called it the. Uh, it's like the the famous for being famous uh, dynamic, yeah, which is the, the right. You called it the Kardashification of of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about what you mean by that, and 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 why you think Twitter became more of a habit than an important public good? Yeah. Um, so. Let me just say about Twitter that I think that it was, in retrospect, it wasn't called this at the time, but it was like the first, it was really the first social network uh, in, in the modern sense of the word. And that was because it was a, it was always a broadcast network, kind of chat room for the world. And uh, that almost facilitated the, the idea that you would go there to become popular, uh, to build broad-based uh, social capital, which of course... Uh, many many people in the media business did, politicians did, uh, real celebrities did, uh, but people who are like famous on the internet, right? Who are internet famous, they tend to use other platforms. They use YouTube or, or, or Instagram or TikTok now. So I think there was always something about Twitter that was, you know, as a door onto this new environment. Uh, but in terms of the like the idea of celebrity, it also changed that. Not not just Twitter, but social media in general. It changed the idea of what it meant to be renowned was already undergoing a shift. We had reality TV, you know, right. already. And, um, you know, people who were socialites or were Paris Hilton types or whatever, they, you know, they've been around for a long, usually though that renown came along with either earned value through talent. You know, you were an, an actor or a musician or else you had the resources with which to manage it and and you know many celebrities manage celebrity very poorly even though they're very they're very wealthy so when i when i say manage i don't necessarily mean manage it well but there was an exchange you know like in exchange for being in the public all the time i have the material conditions in which i can sort of deal with that situation even if it just means like getting a bunch of bodyguards or building a big fence right and with the internet we kind of got the worst of both worlds like all of that all of that uh uh, attention associated with fame where anybody because you're renowned can form a belief about you or feel as though they are justified in in passing judgment against you uh, without the obvious or or the you know the kind of concomitant material benefits and you see this all the time in the sort of influencer economy which is directly created by social media like the people who do really well do really well and most people can't make a living at it but yet they're still subject to this, you know, abusive, uh, constant attention. Maybe the most famous examples of these are these like uh, public shaming, you know, events. Right. And I think we all kind of, we look at those and we think this is bad. Like something's wrong here when you can say some offhand comment on the internet and then you, you know, you lose your job the next day just because it's inconvenient for your company to have to deal with it. That, that feels, it feels dirty and, and, and sick. But there's no there's no upside to the fame, right? And unless you turn it into a podcast or, or something, like you kind of leverage it. Like, look at me, I'm famous for being 
uh, infamous uh, online. So I think that dynamic is totally new uh, culturally at the scale that, that we now uh, encounter it. Well, there's also, I mean, there's the negative side of what happens to you when you're famous, whether you're a celebrity or you're just someone who who tweets a lot and gets uh, noticed there. There's the potential for public shaming, for public embarrassment, for saying something wrong. There's also the other side of it, which is, and this has been around as long as celebrity, the idea of celebrity has been around, which is what you have to do to become famous, yeah. <laughs> right? Which is you present yourself a certain way to the world that is carefully curated and crafted and edited. Yeah. Uh, and now that you have everyone doing that, <laughs> who's on social media, it's just yet another way you don't really get to know people and connect right. with people because well, they don't know themselves. Right. Anymore. You're connecting with what they want you to perceive them as. Right. It's all kind of pretense or, or the promise of pretense. And you know, I, we know this is happening and people talk about it very actively. This, you know, like, look at this, look at this, you know, you see folks like Instagramming themselves in public and you're like, what are they, what are they doing? And, and for a while there was sort of a sneer you know, like, let's just let them do it. Like, don't police what they do uh, online, you know, with their lives. But then it did start to feel like, well, this is this is strange. And, and, you know, not even that it was bad, but just that something was different, that we were we were structuring our lives in a different way. And all of that, like, attentional promise, that sort of idea that I have something that might be widely consumable, not necessarily even valuable, but just that if you see it, and if a lot of people see it, that that would be gratifying uh, to me. And that gratification is, is really real. You know, the, the sort yeah. of, um, you know, yeah, like that, like, um, that, like emotional uh, reaction, that response that you get to being recognized and, and, and praised or, or, or chastised even. And so we, we sought it out more and more and those became our dreams. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a dopamine rush, right? It's a yeah, constant, right. it's a constant yeah. hit. You mentioned TikTok. Obviously, Twitter's going through something <laughs> right now. Facebook has been going through something for a little while now. TikTok is, you know, it, it's growing, right? It's becoming yeah. more popular, more dominant. And I think that's a platform that's even less about, I would argue, is even less about networking and more about broadcasting Correct. Than, yeah. than Twitter. Where do you think TikTok fits into this larger story about sort of the possibility of the age of social media ending? Yeah, so if I can take a quick step back, I think it's worth kind of looking at what I would call the invention of, of social media, which to me happened sometime between the the smartphone and Instagram. That's when this idea cohered. The smartphone, what the smartphone did, by the way, was give us all the internet all the time. It's in your pocket, it's in your purse, you're constantly online. And, and that's a prerequisite to social media existing. Instagram bridged the social media and social network worlds. So it was kind of, and it kind of still is a little bit about your friends, your family, you know, seeing what they're up to. And, and then it also became about performing these identities we were just talking about, about being Instagram famous, about, you know, getting sponsorships or getting sent free stuff, all the rest of it. And since then, we've seen a series of, of new services kind of crop up as they fad in and out of favor. You know, Facebook for a while was was popular and then then it fell away and people started using Instagram and then they were using Snapchat. And so it's easy to kind of look at these services and just think of them all as 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 kind of being in line for 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 the the current young generation's attention. Mm. Which is one of the ways that people talk about TikTok. 
today. It's a Gen Z social network. But there's also something formally and structurally different about TikTok than, you know, Instagram or, or Twitter. And, and, and it's the observation uh, that you wisely made, which is that it's almost not at all about connection. The, the the way that TikTok works is that you don't really sign up for you don't you can kind of make an account but it's not a, you don't connect with your friends you're instantly given this this feed of material and the algorithm drives everything uh, that you see and yeah you can still follow people and that that has certain value on the service but the way that you interact with it is basically just as a like a giant uh, series of channels um, of, of material uh, and you don't even know why you're seeing them. So we're, we're just right back to broadcast all over again. And the, all that social networking baggage has been uh, jettisoned because it was slowing everything down. Uh, but the slowing down is what I want. Like that, That's what I thought was good about social networking. What I think is bad about social media. So TikTok is a real puzzle. It's not a puzzle. It's a problem because it has gotten rid of the things that were at least giving us a little bit of friction. You know, we're causing us to have to think, well, who do I even want to see? on this service all that's gone on tiktok i was thinking the same about the same word is, is friction there's there's no friction on tiktok and i was very late to tiktok because i'm older i'm 41 right. me too um my wife was on it for a while and so i finally sign up and i was like oh so do I, I i'll follow you i'll follow everyone like who else do i follow and she's like it's not really a following thing yeah <laughs> and i'm like wait a minute it's not she's like no no it's like, just you just watch it and you just keep you, you know, you just go to the next video and it's like, well, that's stupid. And then I, and then like two hours later, right. You <laughs> like come, come watching, and, I, and I was suddenly right. I got it. I was like, oh, this is incredibly addictive, but it is all consumption. There is yeah. like, I am not doing anything else. I'm just watching video to video to video. And it's like, there is something you lose because sometimes when I see a funny video on TikTok, I want to like talk to someone about it, right? I want to like text someone and say, oh, isn't that funny? Or let's talk about it, right? It really disincentivizes sort of any interaction with other people, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. feels like it is just 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 digging the hole deeper. Yeah, it's just a fire hose. And and like the uncoolest thing you can do on the internet today is, is like text someone a TikTok or put it on Twitter. Like that's the worst thing you can do. So uncool. Because that's just not how you use it. That's not how it works. The other thing is it's it's really hard. I mean, there's a lot of friction involved in making a, a video at all, but like an effective TikTok. And you would think that that would make it less susceptible to these kind of bad patterns of social media, but somehow it, it actually makes it worse because you, as you say, you're mostly consuming it. Like to become a, a, a TikTok creator is really difficult, let alone to become an effective one. It's kind of the opposite of the supposed democratization of internet creativity that we saw in the first 15 or 20 years of social networks and social media. So back to the original, the aspirational hope that uh, the age of social media could end. Like, look, I could see one scenario where Twitter, Facebook end up being replaced with new social media platforms that have similar problems, if not worse. Um, Right. I can also see a scenario that you argue is unlikely, but at least plausible, where what comes after social media is a return to these social networks that sort of started it all. What do you think it would take for that scenario to transpire? I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine. <laughs> and, you know, despite what I've, what I've written, we have to be realistic. We're not going to, you don't go back in time. Mm-hmm. Things change. I think the way I would sort of prognosticate about it is that 
some of the aspects of social networks, you know, there's something that we could borrow back from them. Or, or maybe here's a better way of putting it. There's a lot of space between the old mode of social network interactions or even the older mode of broadcast media where nobody got to say anything and where we're at now where everybody's constantly saying stuff. So if we just like explored that space between, you know, a, a handful of broadcasters on news programs and in newspapers and magazines and everyone constantly all the time on a thousand internet apps, then surely there's something in there that would feel good, that would be pro-social, uh, that would give us some of the benefits of social network and even some of the benefits of, of like the attention economy, which isn't all bad exactly, but that wasn't kind of like turned up to 11 all the time. I think that's the most realistic future exit to imagine because the genie can't be put back in the bottle to some extent. I mean, you've called this concept sort of downscaling. You've written downscaling. a lot about it. Like, how would that actually work? Is that, could you see, uh, you know, in this, in our fantasy world here, we're, we're able to do this, which, you know, as we both acknowledge is somewhat unlikely. Would you actually just say that people can't reach an unlimited number of people with each post or message? That's a great example. And it's something I've, uh, an example I've thought about. What if your message is just kind of like timed out. I mean, they could do so temporarily, but there's like, it reaches a certain number and that's just enough. Like uh, no message should reach more than N plus one people, whatever that number is. And then it just dies. It goes away. It vanishes. And, you know, it's impossible to really enforce because you yeah. can copy it or you can move it. But as a native uh, spreadable unit of content, what if it, uh, it then evaporated? And you know, like this too, there's so many things that we have adapted to that were invented that we now treat as natural. The idea of sharing something on Facebook or on Twitter uh, or any of these places that like allow reposting, that had to be invented. And back before it was invented on Twitter with the retweet, you know, we used to have to like copy and paste a retweet. Yeah. That was enough friction that when it changed, the viral spread of these messages, good and bad, exploded. So we know that just a little bit of friction, it, it doesn't, it still gives you the ability to spread the word, right? To get your ideas out but doesn't make it so that every idea uh, both can and aspires to be, you know, seen by um, millions or billions uh, of people. So yeah, that's one example. Another is like, just like maybe the amount of connections that we have should be constrained. That was something that we also did with these services in the past. You, you didn't used to be able to follow uh, as many people as you wanted on, on Twitter. There were these sort of models of how many followers you had to have versus how many you could follow. And, even something as simple as the way that LinkedIn, which is a, a, a social network that became a social media service for business, though, they always have always had this like you have 500 plus connections, you know, yeah. and and the, the deliberate I've talked to them about this, the, the deliberate design around that was to discourage people from collecting, which, of course, you're very tempted to do when you're networking. And it didn't really work, but the idea was there, right? The, so there's some, like really simple things that can be done. Another, you know, what if I just can't post as often, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I tried out this app. I wrote about it for The Atlantic, too, uh, that is like email that works like snail mail. Like you get a delivery once a day as if the postman is coming. And, you know, it, it doesn't really have a future as a mass market product, but as an experiment that gives us a sense of, of what's possible or it just gives us a different feeling. Yeah. I'm like, you know, that, that, there's a lot of ideas that haven't been explored. And every time I talk to, you know, I talk about this and people are like, well, 
you know, isn't this preposterous? Like social media is here to stay. Just remind them it, it wasn't always here. And, and all of these, uh, these incumbents were once seen as disruptors. So it certainly can happen again. It's that time again. Time to start thinking taxes. But this tax smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. What do you think about some of the places that people are fleeing to from Twitter, the Mastodon post, mm-hmm. some of these uh, potential Twitter alternatives? It's mostly silly in, in my view. I think mostly what these folks are doing, and I get it, is they're sort of performing their distaste for <laughs> Musk era Twitter. <laughs> That's yeah, that's sort of my impression. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, like all of the problems I'm describing with social media are structural problems. They're not just that it's Twitter or that Elon Musk is in charge. It's that the, the way that the services work at a software level and at a social level, there's something wrong with them. So to think, okay, well, you know, I'm just gonna go from Twitter to kind of ex- as, ex- as something as close to the software as possible that isn't run by Musk then what are you doing? It's just a lateral move. We're reproducing or trying to reproduce all of those same bad habits in a new venue. So it's just a non-starter to me. I mean, it does seem that one big challenge here is there's sort of a, a social cultural challenge in persuading people that this belief that you should be able to say whatever you want to the biggest possible audience it's sort of tied up in some foundational values of what it means to live in a liberal democracy, right? Like, even though it it has not always been the case, of course, because of technology, that you could say whatever you want to as many people as possible. But I think the reason that Musk has sort of co-opted this idea of free speech is because free speech as a value is so sort of embedded in 
the American experience and in, in a liberal democracy that I wonder how difficult it is to tell everyone, hey, maybe you shouldn't be able to talk to everyone or, or right. build the biggest audience possible. Right. No, it's it's a really smart comment because we we've we basically just conflated free speech, which which means that I should have a voice that the government doesn't control. That's all it really means, right? It doesn't say anything about how often I can have it, or it, and it puts constraints on the contexts in which I can have that speech. But we've confused that idea with I should be able to say whatever I want to whomever I want as often as possible. And it's a powerful rhetorical move on the part of the political actors, whether they're technologists or, 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 or politicians or others, that want their voices to be the loudest, you know, works for that purpose. But that's a rhetorical move. It's not really about giving people a voice. It's about allowing the loudest voices to become even louder. I mean, the other argument I've heard that I, I, I do find persuasive is there are social and political benefits that come with allowing people who haven't always had a voice to broadcast their beliefs and build an audience. Black Lives Matter is the most commonly cited example here. But, you know, the, the idea that the age of uh, three broadcast mm -hmm. networks and, and just people having columns in newspapers or, or even now, right? Like you have a, yeah. a, a, you can write in the Atlantic if you want, right? Like right. that's an era of gatekeepers and those gatekeepers tended to not just recognize talent and hard work, but also um, people who tended to be, you know, whiter and more male and, and come from good schools and good backgrounds, right? And like, and then people who have been marginalized and, and, and don't usually have a voice, social media has allowed them to sort of have a voice. How do you build sort of larger movements and, and lift up voices that haven't been heard in smaller social networks? Right. Every time I hear this uh, objection, which I, I hear a lot, right, because it sounds as if what I'm advocating for is that only people like me get to right. have a voice. And, uh, and that's not it at all. Um, I, I think that we should have more voices. It, it's not the number of voices. It's the, the frequency and constancy of them. And I think it, in the same way as that sort of free speech notion has been contorted, the idea that more voices more of the time is always better. That's also been a little bit misconstrued. What we want is we want to give uh, the right people the right opportunities. And we probably do want the right people to mean as many different kinds of people uh, as possible. I think we can do that. And we were doing that. We were even doing that with social networks. It's not like this idea of online uh, discourse or online connectivity or movements that were arising out of it is somehow unique to the social uh, media era. It's rather like, what are the structures that we want to put in place to facilitate those kinds of activities, but then also to, to dampen them? And here's where things get tricky, because I think we do want gatekeepers. We, we don't want like just one kind of gatekeeper, right. but we want some gatekeepers. You shouldn't just be able to say anything all the time. Uh, and we, we are somehow going to have to contend with the fact that that position, we just need to figure it out. And it's going to be a lot of work to kind of unwind it so that it doesn't sound like me, a white man who writes in the Atlantic, is saying, well, that means that people like me are the ones who get to talk on podcasts like this. Really, all I'm saying is let's, let's just like think about it for a minute. Let's use some process of constraining and controlling the total amount of speech that we have available 
which in my mind doesn't in any way obviate the capacity of these these grassroots social movements uh, uh, to flourish. Maybe a simpler way of putting this is there has to be something in between uh, three broadcast networks yeah. and social media. There just has to be. Yeah. I sort of wonder if the effort it will take to sort of break people out of these addictions, which is sort of what they are, at the best, they're bad habits, <laughs> worse, mm-hmm. they're addictions. Right. It, it, I saw you um, compare it to sort of making smoking uncool. Right. Which right. I do think it was, a, it was a great analogy because I thought like, you know, that that is what's required. Like I've done so many of these interviews and we sort of talk about the regulatory possibilities and that seems like it's never going to happen for a whole bunch of different reasons, institutional, political, et cetera. And I also think just on an individual basis, it's tough because when you're addicted to anything, let alone, you know, social media, it's tough to just stop on your own. So it does seem like there's a a broader cultural movement that needs to happen. Have you sort of thought about what that might look like? It's going to be harder than smoking because we could see it. You know, smoking was a thing in the world and, 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 you know, you could smell it. You could taste it. It got on your clothes and in your car upholstery. It was everywhere. And and that was like bracketing the fact that it was also killing us literally. Right. It was palpable. And I think though, that if you look back on smoking and the, the era, the 20th century obsession with smoking as a social practice, everyone knew, everyone knew that it was, they knew it was bad and it was gross but what else were you going to do? Well, you know, you just kind of have to smoke. Or you have to be around people who smoke. And until until we said no, like like wait, hold up, like this isn't necessary. There there are other ways of uh, of living our lives t- together, and that required a reinvention. It required you know kind of new structures where you would say, um, well, what if we just like started with a place where you don't have to deal with there being smoking? And that never really quite worked. But we did get like non-smoking sections of yeah. restaurant. I mean, you used to be able to smoke on airplanes. It's kind of a, you know, shocking to think about, right? Um, you know, and then, and then slowly there were some regulatory wins that were achievable. You know, first it was uh, no smoking in, uh, in bars and nightclubs, or first it was restaurants and it was bars. You know, we sort of slowly removed this from the fabric of the world. And I, and I think when I look back on this period, just, just as an analogy, not as a, as a model, there's an admission that we have to make about our present habits. And that's that the things that we know are bad habits, we have to adjust. We have to make changes to. So for a long time with, with smartphones and with the internet, there's been this idea that if you sort of say to someone, Hey, like, can you just put your phone down like for a minute? And like, I thought we were having a conversation right. And I'm just as guilty of it. Right. Like, you know, with my kids and instead I'm looking at Twitter and for a while, it was like, well, that, you know, that was off limits. That was construed as, as somehow, you know, policing contemporary life uh, in, a, in a way that was inappropriate and impossible. Uh, but it's also right. It's like, no, that, that is the first step a little bit. Not because you need to have self-control, but because we need some kind of social collaboration in which we can agree to do it together. Like, this is a really simple example of this. I don't think it's the best one, but it's at least concrete that I wrote about in one of my books where, you know, you get together... You go out with friends uh, to to dinner or something. Everybody like stacks their phone in the middle of the table, and uh, the first person to pick theirs up has to pay. You know, it's a silly game, but what was interesting about it is a social structure in which people were helping one another change their habits. So habits are just the things that we do, 
they can be good or they can be bad, but it's very hard to break them once we do them all the time. And so un- unless we have some sort of mechanism in which to, to change those habits together, then we're, we're really sunk. And we are waiting on regulation is, I mean, it's just not going to happen. But then waiting on like the, the technology companies to, to fix themselves also not going to happen. And likewise, waiting on some sort of upstart to, to, to come along and give us some new option, that, that's also uh, unlikely. So we'll, we'll have to try to you know, do it at small scale. Like where are the environments that you're in? How do you want to behave and live in them? Which gets us back to this whole idea of real social networks. I was just going to say, yeah, the, the, I love the example of the, the restaurant game with friends and that sort of policing each other in uh in a small social network (laughs) yeah yeah i I have a friend i talked to you know about like this stuff and and you know i was like what do you do like how do you how do you deal with these you know one thing i've tried to do is like i'm just like not online on sundays i'm just that that felt like something i could do and i can do it with my my family because it's also the weekend and i you know it still puts a lot of burden on the individual which i don't think is a, a solution as such but it's going to be slow and hard, and it will take a long time. It took smoking uh, fifty years uh, to just you know really dissipate and evaporate from society, and then we of course like immediately brought it back with with uh, uh, nicotine, um, yeah, so that's uh, yeah vaping and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, right. But so that's, you know, that's a that's a different topic. But um, how how last last question for you? How has um how has your relationship with social media changed? Uh, over the last several years? I mean, I think I am not an exception. I'm, I'm just as guilty as, as anyone of having these, uh, these bad habits. I'm, I'm more uh, aware of them. I'm, I'm certainly seeking the conflict and the interactions less though. Um, and in part of that just means I, I pick fewer fights or I respond to fewer people. Yeah. I feel like I've been through it now, you know, like I know what feels bad and I try to avoid that a little bit more but how do you live how do you live online i forget if you're a media professional just just you know how do you not have a linkedin or a facebook or something so i i really think we're all in it together and you know i think when when you talk to people and they say i found it i found the answer i'm the exception they're lying yeah no that is that is true i'm i'm the same way less conflict less picking fights but uh the consumption is still there that's the problem yeah yeah (laughs) Ian Bogost, thank you so much for uh, for joining offline. Uh, this was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Be sure to check out the new Cricket podcast, Work Appropriate where author and host Anne Helen Peterson sets out to find solutions to universal workplace problems by answering listener-submitted questions. Whether you work in an office chair or a sixth-grade classroom, the problems may be limitless, 
but so are the solutions. Listen to Work Appropriate now wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Wednesday. It's a fantastic podcast. Anne Helen Peterson is a brilliant writer and host, so please check it out. It's that time again. Time to start thinking taxes. But this tax smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 